0: Is it possible, at the moment of death, to appear to a loved one to offer words of comfort and proof of life after death? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to The Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and return to tell the tale. These are their stories. It is comforting to note that easily the largest number of verifiable ghostly encounters involve the appearance of a friend or loved one at precisely the moment of that person's death, or very shortly thereafter, to communicate that they are at peace and survive in what, for lack of a better term, I shall call the other side, and it is rare in my experience, after presenting a talk on the subject of ghosts, that I am not approached by someone in the audience who graciously shares with me such an experience, which had occurred either to themselves or to a close family member. One of the most famous instances of such an experience occurred to the Scottish statesman Henry Lord Broome, would eventually become the Lord Chancellor of Great Britain, an incident which involved an old school chum to whom he refers in his account only as G. As recounted in The Life and Times of Henry Lord Broom, written by himself and copied from an entry made in his journal at the time of his experience, Lord Broom was traveling in Sweden with friends when on December 18th In his words, we set out for Gothenburg, determining to make for Norway. About one in the morning, arriving at a decent inn, we decided to stop for the night. Tired with the cold of yesterday, I was glad to take advantage of a hot bath before I turned in. And here, a most remarkable thing happened to me. So remarkable that I must tell the story from the beginning. After I left high school, I went with G, my most intimate friend, to attend classes in the university. There was no divinity class, but we frequently in our walks discussed and speculated upon many grave subjects, among others, on the immortality of the soul and on a future state. This question And the possibility, I will not say of ghosts walking, but of the dead appearing to the living, were subjects of much speculation. And we actually committed the folly of drawing up an agreement written with our blood to the effect that whichever of us died, the first, should appear to the other, and thus solve any doubts we had entertained of the life after death. After we had finished our classes at the college, she went to India, having gotten an appointment there in the civil service. He seldom wrote to me, and after the lapse of a few years, i had almost forgotten him. Moreover, his family having little connection with Edinburgh, I seldom saw or heard anything of them or of him through them, so that all his schoolboy intimacy had died out, and I'd nearly forgotten his existence. I had taken, as I have said, a warm bath, and while lying in it and enjoying the comfort of the heat, after the late freezing I'd undergone, I turned my head round, looking toward the chair on which I deposited my clothes, as I was about to get out of the bath. On the chair. Sat G, looking calmly at me. How I got out of the bath, I know not, but on recovering my senses, I found myself sprawling on the floor. The apparition, or whatever it was that had taken the likeness of G, had disappeared. This vision produced such a shock that I had no inclination to talk about it or to speak about it. But the impression it made upon me was too vivid to be easily forgotten. And so strongly was I affected by it that I have here written down the whole history with the date, 19th December, and all the particulars as they are now fresh before me. No doubt I had fallen asleep and that the appearance presented so distinctly to my eyes was a dream. I cannot for a moment doubt. Yet for years, I had had no communication with G, nor had there been anything to recall him to my recollection. Nothing had taken place during our Swedish travels, either connected with G, or with India, or with anything relating to him, or to any member of his family. I recollected quickly enough our old discussion and the bargain we had made, I could not discharge from my mind the impression that G must have died and that his appearance to me was to be received by me as a proof of a future state. Yet all the while I felt convinced that the whole was a dream and so painfully vivid, so unfading was the impression that I could not bring myself to talk of it or to make the slightest allusion to it. In October, 1862, Lord Broome added as a postscript to the story, I have just been copying out from my journal the account of this strange dream, and now to finish the story begun 60 years since. Soon after my return to Edinburgh, there arrived a letter from India announcing G's death and stating that he had died on the 19th of December. A much more common example of such an event was reported to the Society for Psychical Research. During my college days, wrote their informant, I had a very dear and intimate chum, R.F. Dombrain. We used to walk together, read together, pray together, and would have thought it wrong to keep any secret from each other. We hoped to go together into the foreign mission field, But my friend was ready to go before I was, and it was while he was in London making arrangements about going abroad that he was seized with a very bad fever and his life for some time despaired of. At last he recovered and returned to Dublin, where I saw him several times. He was not quite restored to health, but I hoped he would soon be so. I received a few letters from my friend which told me of gradually improving health. I was busily occupied about my mission work in the village of Dune and felt perfectly at ease about my dear friend's recovery. A few days had elapsed without any tidings reaching me when on the morning of the 14th of April I had the most vivid dream I remember ever to have seen. I seemed to be walking with young Dombrain amidst some beautiful scenery when suddenly I was brought to a waking condition by a sort of light appearing before me. I started up in my bed and saw before me, in his ordinary dress and appearance, my friend who seemed to be passing from earth towards the light above. He seemed to give me one loving smile and I felt that his look contained an expression of affectionate separation and farewell. Then I leaped out of bed and cried with a loud voice, Robert! Robert! And the vision was gone. In the house, there was sleeping a young servant boy whose name was also Robert. He came running into my room, saying that my loud cry had awakened him from sound sleep and that he thought i was ill the whole scene was so impressed upon my mind that i felt the death of my friend just as really as if i had been by his bedside and seen him pass away i had looked at my watch and found the time three minutes past five i knew that at that moment my friend's spirit had passed from his body i could think of nothing else A class of scripture readers came to me at 10 o'clock that morning. I told them I could not speak to them of the appointed subject, but must tell them what had occurred. And for a long time, I lectured them entirely on the subject of the future state and the separation of the soul from the body. During the whole of the day, the same sad gloom weighed down on my mind, which I should have felt had I been with my friend at his deathbed. I wrote to his sister, asking for particulars, and I wished to know the exact time the death had taken place. The following morning, I received a letter from my sister, stating that for a few days, Mr. Dombrain had not been so well, and that at three minutes past five in the morning, he had quietly passed away from this world. Since then, I have very often mentioned the circumstance to friends, and the deep impression made by the event can never pass from my mind. It is also from the files of the Society for Psychical Research that we find the following account, written by Mr. W.J. Kemp of Long Ashton School. I was a boy in the sixth form at Harrow, and, as head of Mr. Kendall's house, had a room to myself. It was in the summer of 1858. I woke about dawn and felt for my books upon a chair between the bed and the window when I knew that I must turn my head the other way. And there, between me and the door, stood Dr. McLean, dressed in a clergyman's black clothes. He bent his sallow face a little towards me and said, I am going a long way. Take care of my son. While I was attending to him, I suddenly saw the door in the place where Dr. McLean had been. Dr. McLean died that night, at what hour I cannot precisely say, at Clifton. My father, who was a great friend of his, was with him. I was not aware that he was more than unusually ill. He was a chronic invalid. Our next account, also from the files of the Society for Psychical Research, is unique in that it involves the apparition of one who had passed on a year or more before, but who returns to impart news of two impending deaths. On Monday, July 31st, 1854, writes their informant, I was at Worksop, staying in the house of Mr. Hemming, the then agent there to the Duke of Newcastle. Just as I woke that morning, I heard the voice of an old school fellow, who had been dead at least a year or two, saying, Your brother Mark and Harriet are both gone. These words were echoing in my ears as I woke. I seemed to hear them my brother then was in america and both were well when i had last heard of them but the words respecting him and his wife were so vividly impressed upon my mind that before i left my bedroom i wrote them down then and there on a scrap of old newspaper having no other paper in the bedroom the voice i seemed to hear and which at first i thought must have been a kind of dream had such an effect on me, that though the bell rang for breakfast, I did not go down for some time, and all that day, and for days after, I could not shake it off. I had the strongest impression, indeed conviction, that my brother was gone. That same day, I returned to Hull, mentioned the circumstance to my wife and entered the incident which had made a deep impression on me in my diary, which I still have. I am as certain as I well can be of anything that the entry is a transcript of what I wrote on the bit of newspaper. On the 18th of August, it was before the Atlantic Telegraph, I received a line from my brother's wife, Harriet, dated August 1st, saying that Mark had just breathed his last of cholera. After preaching on Sunday, he had been taken ill with cholera on Monday and had died on Tuesday morning. That she herself was ill, and that in the event of her death, she wished their children should be brought to Edinburgh. She died the second day after her husband. August 3rd. I immediately started for America and brought the children home. I ought perhaps to add that we had no knowledge of the cholera being in the neighborhood of my brother's parish. My impression was that both he and his wife must, if the voice be true, have been taken away by some railway or steamboat accident. But you should notice That at the moment when I seemed to hear this voice, my brother was not dead. He died early the next morning, August 1st, and his wife, nearly two days later, namely August 3rd. I do not profess to explain it. I simply state the facts or the phenomena, but the impression made on me was profound, and the coincidence itself is remarkable. Sometimes the apparition announces itself not only by being seen, but by a physical act which can be felt. I have a very vivid recollection a female correspondent to the Society for Psychical Research recounted that towards dawn on the morning of August 3rd, 1867 i was roused from my sleep to find my brother an officer in the sixteenth Lancers, then quartered in madras standing by my bed my impression is that he bent over me kissed me and passed quietly from the room making signs to me not to speak and that i was full of joy thinking he had returned home unexpectedly and lay awake till the maid called me when my first words to her were that my brother had come home and I had seen him. I remember my bitter disappointment when at last made to believe that this was not so and that it was quite impossible I could have seen him. Also, that I was scolded and silenced for holding to my story. I cannot remember how much time elapsed before the news came by telegram that my brother died suddenly of jungle fever on August 2nd. Full particulars did not reach us for weeks later, and it was not till long afterwards that I put two and two together, as the saying is, and found that, as I then and now firmly believe, my brother came to me at the hour of his death. The date I fixed by reference to a childish diary I then kept, but I cannot give you the exact hours. I know by letters that my brother died soon after 10 o'clock p.m. on August 2nd, and I know that my room was not quite dark when I saw him, and that I did not fall asleep again before morning on August 3rd. The army list confirms August 2nd, 1867 as the date of his death. The vision seems to have followed the death by nine or ten hours. final account was given to me by a now-deceased friend of mine, Tom McDonough. It was in the year 1918, in the little town of Lombard, Illinois, that Tom had been attending a party with some other young people at the Garside home, playing the phonograph and dancing. At the end of the evening, Tom left for home and was about half a block from the Garside house when he noticed that someone was walking beside him. To his surprise, he found that it was Mr. Garside walking in a direction away from his house rather than towards it. Tom was even more bewildered when Mr. Garside spoke to him, asking Tom to go back to his house and to tell his family that he was all right. Utterly confused... Tom asked Mr. Garside why he didn't go back to the house and tell them himself. I can't do that, Mr. Garside responded. I was on my boat in the North Fork of the Chicago River. A fire at the amusement park swept over to my boat, and I couldn't get away. Please go back and tell them not to feel bad. Tell them I'm all right. Well... Tom had never experienced anything like this before, and he didn't know what to do. What would the family think? Tom worried if Mr. Garside were to return home safe and sound, and it turned out that none of this was true. How in the world would he explain his reason for coming to them with such a story? When Tom failed to turn back and comply with his request, Mr. Garside dissolved into nothingness. Tom proceeded on his way home, feeling extremely guilty for not having delivered Mr. Garside's message. When he got home, Tom telephoned Jean, a young lady with whom he had been keeping company and who also had been at the party that night. Although he realized that he was taking a terrible chance of being misunderstood, Tom told Jean exactly what had happened. For the sake of his sanity, he just had to tell somebody, come what may. Jean responded that she thought he was wise not to go back to the Garside house, as they would probably not understand, and Tom let it go at that. The next day, the news was all over town. Mr. Garside had indeed died in a fire at the amusement park. He had been unable to escape the flames when the sail and mast of his boat had collapsed on top of him. Jean was later to become Tom's wife, and though they had become divorced when years later I contacted her, she confirmed every detail of Tom's story. (music) The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie, a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei. And by Windwhistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts, by Mark Lyon.